0: She's the author of two novels, Skylarking and her best-selling The Mother Fault. Today I'm talking to Kate Mildenhall about her third novel, The Hummingbird Effect. Kate, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks
1: so much for having me, Greg.
0: Many listeners will be familiar with the idea of the butterfly effect, but the hummingbird effect asks us to take a different view of time, a backwards-looking version of time in a way, to ask what might have been. For the Aztecs, the hummingbird was a talisman. What's the hummingbird to you?
1: Well, that's a great question. I, I came to the hummingbird effect as a concept through the work of the writer and podcaster Stephen Johnson, who now... um. I think he does the TEDx podcast now, and he had a wonderful book uh, that I really loved called How We Got to Now, which is about six innovations that really changed the world. And the hummingbird effect, as opposed to the butterfly effect, is this idea that an innovation in one particular area might have unintended consequences in another facet of society or or culture. And I, I was thinking so much in this book about the idea of the big changes that happened particularly in work so the novel began for me with this idea of the changes to meatworks through the introduction of the chain system and what might have happened if the strike against that particular chain um, had been successful and where we might be now so it seemed like a wonderful kind of um idea to hold the book together when I was thinking so much about little changes that might have been made in history or in fact now or in the future that might give us a better world.
0: And the four characters that um, occupy well the main space in this story because there are other um, characters as well and we might talk also about relationships in this because each of those characters has a relationship to somebody else which has a bearing on their lives. So we're talking about Peggy, Hilda, Cat and Maz—they uh, each inhabit different times and different places, but they bear no obvious or direct connection. But the thing they have in common is that they're attempting to navigate the challenges they face in their particular time and place.
1: So Peggy is a young woman in 1933 who is working at the Anglis Meatworks in, in Footscray, um, which is a, a real place. And that that particular narrative is based on a, the true story of what happened in 1903 in Footscray in Melbourne. Um, but Peggy is uh, a woman who wants to make her mark on the world, um, and, of course, that's, that's limited by the time that she's living in. Uh, she falls very quickly uh, head over heels for the head slaughterman, Jack. What a catch. And what a catch. And you know, Greg, I did a lot of uh, research. There's some wonderful interviews in the in the archive from meat workers who worked at, at Anglis. Um, and one of the things they all say is that the slaughtermen were like gods. And so that's what I wanted to bring out to this idea that before the introduction of the chain, the slaughtermen were the the top, top, absolute top of the hierarchy in the meatworks. Um so Peggy falls for this man, she moves in with Lil. Uh, who has a little house whose mother has died and she needs to bring in a um a renter or a boarder? And their relationship is is really what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to focus on this idea of how women uh, support each other, how they how they create family in ways uh, that is are very profound and supportive. Peggy and Lil and their relationship was really the relationship that I began with.
0: From possibility, the possibilities that Peggy might see in her future, we move to a kind of inevitability uh, when we meet Hilda, a resident of Sanctuary Gardens Nursing Home, a place where, I quote you, where people come to rest.
1: Hilda, I started writing during the pandemic, um, Greg, which you can probably tell through, through that section. And I really wanted to look at the idea of what happened to people who were in aged care during lockdown and that isolation. Uh, but also to really bring forward the idea of um, the work that aged care workers were doing during that time and all healthcare workers were doing during that time. Hilda is a scientist. Uh, She's 86 when we meet her and she's in um, the early stages of dementia that progresses very rapidly during the period that we're with her. She's thinking back on key moments in her life that were really profound to her and I my, my grandmother died last year. Um, I was very close to her. And I think that that really influenced the way that I wrote Hilda in thinking about a woman's whole life um, and how she might consider the, the key moments of that. Uh, she's feisty. You know, she doesn't like the, the dinner that's being served to her. Um, and she's frustrated by by the fact that she is alone and isolated during this time. But she's also remembering this extraordinary life that that she had as well. And I really wanted to bear witness to to the lives of women.
0: It's very interesting way you tell Hilda's story too, because it's not a straightforward telling of a story. You introduce other elements, and some of those things like nursing home reports and email exchanges or text exchanges, they give it also this clinical feel to life in the sanctuary gardens?
1: I was very lucky to have a wonderful reader, another writer, Sam Coley, who did a, a read for me on that section. My my partner's a nurse, uh, so he did some of the work for me, but I wanted to make sure that I got that that section right. Um, and I knew firsthand the frustrations of, of families often who are dealing with the healthcare system. Um, and I really wanted to make sure that that had like a a 360 kind of degree view of that experience. The same with going into the aged care workers' uh, lives. And anyone who who lived through particularly down here in Melbourne um, lockdowns knows that the WhatsApp chats uh, that you had with friends or family were really so key to getting through that time. And in fact, some of those sections where I try and sum up the experience of what it was being uh, in lockdown during COVID. I took a lot of that that language directly from my own WhatsApp chats with my friends and the kinds of newspaper headlines and media reports that we were getting at the time as well.
0: And Hilda's, as you said, uh, in the early stage of dementia. Um, she's clinging to her memories, and some of those are quite vivid. The, the ones of the, uh, as a...
1: I never get this pronunciation correct.
0: Lepidurologist, I believe. She is a lepidurologist. Thank you for the pronunciation there. But she's also fearful of losing them. And there's a lovely phrase you use to describe, I guess, her pathway, which is she loosens into timelessness.
1: I really am interested, and I've just read uh, the wonderful book by Paul Delgado, A Country of Eternal Light, where the narrator, Margaret, is actually already dead, but looking back at her memories and revisiting them. And I think one of the things that I did with my own grandmother was recorded some of our conversations towards the end and she was struck by always by the fact that she could remember the man who sold her lollies as a child in Northgate, you know, when she was six at the milk bar, but she couldn't remember what happened yesterday. And I think that idea of being able to go back through and and kind of move through these key moments, relationships, work, her relationships with family were something that I really wanted to to bring to the fore in thinking about what what does make up a life and what we might remember at the
0: end. From the present day, we move into the near future and we meet the characters of Cat and La. It's a dystopian world they inhabit and yet so familiar to us here and now.
1: I love this idea of pushing just forward, and I did it in my previous book, The Mother Fault, um, where, it felt like it was just a little bit ahead, and in that way, is I think quite terrifying, both as the writer and sometimes as the reader. I was really interested, Greg, in the idea of the Amazon-esque warehouse uh, and that want, that constant desire to purchase to have things. Some of those sections in there where uh, Lara is packing, packing uh, various packages in the, in the warehouse. I took those directly from things that you can buy on Amazon. So, you know, bacon flavored underwear is a thing. I did not know it existed, but there you go. There it is. Uh, so I was really interested in, in that and particularly in this idea that various organizations now as part of their benefits that they might give an employee offer things like, uh, egg freezing for women, IVF, uh, it just it it spins into this idea of a, a dystopian world where you think well that's great you know that's great that buys me a little bit more time that is good for you know my i don't have to pay for these kind of of health benefits but then who owns those eggs what does it mean for your workers rights if you have a complaint with the company so i really wanted to kind of get right into that and and tease that out a little bit as well
0: and there's a lot of pressure on the relationship between lara and cat they're planning to start a family, but that plan and their very existence is complicated by time and circumstance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I did a lot of talking to uh, various friends and and women, and I think this is a moment and this goes to the kinds of questions that I I raise and explore in the the far future section about what our responsibility is to our children and, and the very many people who are choosing now not to have children either. And I think those questions about asking, well, a is this a world we want to bring children into? B, do I want to have kids just because that's always what's been expected of me? Uh, is is a really interesting uh, tension to play with as well. And of course, this idea, this is is where I I began to really play with AI as well. That you know, Lara is a character whose uh, voice has been damaged. She's a singer by trade. She's an artist. Uh, and she always thought that she could do her art and and yet she can't. Uh, and she's licensed her voice to to an AI company as well. So that you know that was a fun to play with. And I did not expect this book to come out at a time where we were all talking about AI so so much.
0: Yes, it's very much a topic of the present day, and uh, congratulations for that foresight. <laughs> and from there, we head into the far future where we meet Maz and her sister onyx it's a strange world they inhabit a new world with a new order scavenged from the wreckage of the old it's 2181 and maz is what's known as a steward what's her role in this new order maz
1: is with a a group the last stewards and maz's role with her sister is to dive for odds so remnants of the past to to clean them up and to destroy them really for JP who's the you know charismatic and powerful leader of, of this little group and tribe um, but of course as in all good stories uh, and this is this one's really for my daughters who are 10 and 12 this this part of the story um, things go arrive.
0: Is there some kind of warning in this book about charismatic or tall charismatic males? <laughs>
1: <laughs> always always great um but i do think that the idea of of what young people especially now um and their hope and their urgent kind of questioning on on what we can do to make a better world was really what fueled that section for me i find it uh exciting but more difficult to do the world-building for, for a, a future world. So I, what I love about historical fiction is that you just kind of follow along the track of, of history and, and follow that timeline, whereas world-building a future feels like an enormous responsibility because you get to, to choose what the world looks like. And for this one I really took a, a lot of inspiration from the work of Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, who, who throws right forward often in his novels misses the collapse and the apocalypse because it's like, you know, we know what happens in the apocalypse. Things go terribly awry. You have often one tall charismatic man who walks through the ice to, you know, save the child in the, the library at the end of the world. Um, but what's more interesting to me certainly is is what the survivors, I suppose, of a collapse might bring forward into their new world. So what are they choosing from the old world to help make the the new future or the the new society. So I I really enjoyed playing with that.
0: We've talked about the central characters of this book, but there is yet another, The Hummingbird Project and the speculative world of AI. Here we witness an exchange between The Hummingbird Project and Eris X, who asks if it's possible to uninvent human innovations, which have since proven to be destructive.
1: I had so much fun with this. So I started this section um you know two years ago before i started playing with ChatGPT, gpt and i was really interested in the idea of if you had a chance and this stemmed from the idea of of if the strike against the chain had have been successful if you had a chance what one innovation from you know human history might you reverse to see if if the, the world had a better chance and I I talked to lots of people I scrolled through reddit threads on this very topic I asked my daughter who was in grade three at the time to take this question to her classmates they said both mushrooms uh, just because they didn't like them but also jail you know what would happen if we if we'd never invented the, the concept of prison so that That was fun for me. But then as we moved into this conversation around ChatGPT and AI, I actually began to put these kinds of questions to ChatGPT myself and have this long kind of ongoing philosophical question about what ChatGPT would do. Uh, Of course, it couldn't answer my questions when I asked it, uh, how would you destroy the world? Because ChatGPT is not allowed to tell you how to destroy the world. But if you play, and this is why I find AI still very exciting as well as I know that there's lots and lots of issues with it. If I started playing with that, so I asked it to speculate on if I was posing a scenario to a philosophy class, how might I destroy the world? Then it would give me some answers. So the idea of uh, somebody playing with AI to try and work out how to make a better world was something that really fascinated me and in fact uh, I don't know how many books have this on the imprint page now but I did make sure that on the imprint page we noted that I had used ChatGPT as part of the inspiration uh, and, the, and the writing process for that section.
0: I suppose you've got to credit everybody don't you? You do. <laughs> in the process of this exchange between Eris X and Hummingbird Eris X Asks Hummingbird to design a visual representation of an algorithm that could undo humanity's worst innovations. But then Eris goes on to make certain priorities, including Bayesian probability, the philosophy of poor clay, counterfactuals, planetary health and wellbeing, social equity, and artistic endeavor. Now, there's a very unusual inclusion in the book, which is, um, and it results from that very instruction, um, a beautiful graphic that represents the Hummingbird Project algorithm. It looks like a map and a guide to an alternative universe.
1: This was so exciting, Greg, and I'm I'm so glad that that you asked about this. When I was writing the novel, I realised that coding or creating an algorithm was absolutely beyond my capacity. Um, I'm a writer; I am not a coder, and I started to put feelers out to ask if any coders or designers might be able to help me with it. And in the end, I had the most extraordinary creative collaboration with a a visual designer from Sydney whose name is Eva Harbridge and we worked for three weeks and I gave her those exact kind of ideas look Eva I've been thinking about philosophy and Bayesian probability and I had worked lots with the diagrams of Paul Clay uh, and we talked and she is the person who designed that extraordinary diagram Uh, so it was just extraordinary for for us both as as artists and creatives Um, but i really liked the idea too that of course ai could not come up with that diagram um, and it's not able to at this point that was a living breathing human with an extraordinary mind and as part of our conversation with each
0: other as well the book began with what might be described as historical fiction in footscray in 1933 but are we now in the realm of science fiction or don't you care for that label (laughs)
1: <laughs> well labels are funny things aren't they um I had a question at a, at an event last night when someone said you know as writers we're always told that we have to stay in our lane and of course my lane began as a historical fiction writer with my first novel Skylarking and then in my second The Motherfault I went on to this idea of spec fic I love them both um I love I love playing with them I love being able to to put them all in place together I was really inspired by works like Jennifer Egan's The Candy House, um, Michael Christie's Greenwood, and, and even, you know, of course, David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas in that way that they can work through all of these different ideas um, and put them all together in one spot. And I think I felt like my job as the as the writer was to make sure that it was uh, very readable, that the reader was going to keep turning the page. So if they'd come to the book. Uh, or to me as a writer through my historical fiction that they wouldn't just put the book down as soon as it got into some weird territory, but they might follow those women and those characters into those different areas and find that they actually quite enjoyed it. Um, And it's been wonderful to hear that readers are, are enjoying it like that.
0: I think this is a book that people will talk about a lot now and into the future. Kate, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Greg.
0: I've been talking to Kate Mildenhall about her new novel, The Hummingbird Effect. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.